Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, and today I'm joined by Chris. Hey, what's going on? And Noah. Hi, how you doing? Today we're going to be talking about the issue of labor in sports and the working conditions faced by athletes. Now, some people have the instinctual reaction to think of Tom Brady and not feel much sympathy for his plight. I understand that. He's but, struggling a lot. I mean, yeah. I, I do. I feel bad. But... Um, the reason we want to discuss this subject is because we feel it is particularly illustrative and particularly public example of what we mean when we talk about issues of class. By that, we mean the difference between working for a wage and getting that money that you make through ownership. I think this is like the only like kind of facet of society where I think like the most average of people like kind of think about labor relations which is why I think it's interesting. Like, whenever it comes up, like, pretty people are completely detached from politics, who are mm-hmm. detached from, you know, and just existing in this phase of history, you're usually detached from working class struggle, at least being a part of it um, consciously. And, you know, and, and then a lockout happens, which a lot happened, especially in the year, like, 2011. Um, that just happened to be a year where so many league lockouts. Um, and, again, lockout is when the owners start the, the, the bargaining process, right? They're the ones who kind of throw the tantrum and say, you know, we're not having a season unless you come to a deal on our terms. Um, there's been times where players have been in strikes, like in the in mid-'90s in baseball. Um, I think the playoffs got canceled. The World Series got canceled in 94. That's correct. Yeah. And, and I think it's just people see, like, the kind of back and forth between how much revenue each side gets. Um, I mean, usually you would think, like, okay, 50-50. I mean, well, some people say, why would the owners have to get half? They don't do anything. Most, The vast majority of sports owners – uh, don't even run their teams, really. Uh, they usually have a GM. And when owners do run their teams, they're kind of almost like these pariahs, you know? Like, for me, I, like, I'm a Raiders fan, and, like, Al Davis was a guy who was extremely hands-on for half a century. Even so, like, he was kind of, he was like, oh, get your hands off the team. Let, the, let all the football people closer to the ground work on it, you know? Or, or Jerry Jones, another example. So I, I think it's, it's interesting to talk about when, whenever it comes up. And hopefully lockouts don't happen much more often, but they always do. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, specifically revenue sharing and that kind, of, uh, that kind of arrangement because that is actually what a lot of these uh, work stoppage actions, especially the lockouts, have been about. In at least three of the major leagues, actually, I think all, yeah. Pretty every much major all league, of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only one that hasn't had major stuff about uh, revenue sharing in terms of sort of working out the kinks is Major League Baseball. All three of the other ones have had major lockouts over how much revenue sharing um, should go to, or how much of revenue should go to the players, how much should go to the owners. In at least one case, in the NBA, I I distinctly remember hearing the owners wanted, uh, I think it was they wanted the player share to go down to something like 47%. Yeah. It was 57 at the time. Yeah, I was like, what what kind of a deal? I mean, the thing is, I mean, they know what they're doing. Like, you know, they're billionaires. I mean, even if, you know, they're just kind of clueless and they didn't really earn all that money mm-hmm. you know, the way people some people think they do they do know at least like the deal like their principles of negotiation so they knew that yeah. okay they're not gonna do 47 but what ended up happening is they went for 53 percent the players tried to go for 53 percent and when the lockout was over they ended up with 51.2 oh okay so they got humiliated yeah <laughs> i mean the thing and the thing is i mean now you look at nba contracts and they're all huge now right i mean mm-hmm. guys who are just like borderline starters who are like, oh, like he's got some good scoring pop, you know, he, he's pretty versatile, <clears throat> $16 million a year, which was used to be a deal you'd give to like maybe a second-tier star player. And now it's kind of gone down to like anybody who's like a competent player is now getting, even if he's like a sixth man coming off the bench. Uh, the thing is, and it varies from sport to sport because the NBA is a league where just by the nature of the game, you only have 12 guys on a team. You have just as much money, if not more, than – Probably any sport besides the NFL, I, I believe, is the yeah. second most popular sport. However, you mention, however you or however you measure that, 
um, right now in North America. And it's only, it's only able to go to so many people. And, and whenever I hear people complain about that, I mean, look, you don't want people who aren't, you know, nurses and aren't, you know, doing like all these things that aren't as praise, not making that much money and athletes are who are just playing a game. But at the end of the day, like, where's the money going to go? Right. Um, it has to go. And I'd rather, no matter what, I'd rather see a billionaire athlete than see an owner just get most of the money for not doing anything. You know, um, the fact is we exist in a market-based society, unfortunately, and that, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, I think when you talk about it being highly public, it's like we don't talk about, say, steel worker contracts or yeah. teacher contracts the way we do athletes. And they're like nobody else has their salaries made public the way athletes are. And those the numbers you talk about with like – mid-tier NBA players, sometimes it, it leads to fans finding themselves siding with owners in these conflicts. They feel a need to defend, you know, the Steinbrenner's ability <laughs> to make a living. Why you got to pick them? Come on. Well, I mean, I think that brings up a really good point in the sense of we tend to think, in a lot of ways, our first reaction to labor disputes, <laughs> if, you know, the Teamsters are on strike or if the NBA has a lockout or whatever, our first thought isn't what are the demands uh, from each side or why are they on strike or any of that. It's, you know, this is impacting my day. Mm -hmm. I am owed something. In the case of the Teamsters, when, when, where I grew up. UPS. Right. Where I grew up, it was, you know, now I can't get to work because they're like blocking a road or something. Uh, uh, when it's when it's players, it's like you know this is my thing that I get to watch. I get to watch a basketball game or a football game, and they're taking this away from me. And it's kind of a weird thing where um, we we never really it, it's they have to put their case before the public, and it's again it's kind of hard to sympathize with you know Tom Brady even if he is only eating Brussels sprouts and chicken you know every day for the rest <laughs> of his life. But TB when there's twelve diet baby TB twelve system system. <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> or actually, it might be a method. I don't know. The point <laughs> is, but you have a ton of athletes in that league who aren't making that kind of money. Very few of them will. And they also need things like, you know, benefits. They need health and safety. They need things like guarantees that they're not just going to get kicked out of their contracts out of nowhere. And the owners have fought them. And I can say this now, having spent several hours researching these things, they have fought them every step of the way. And yep. they have given literally no ground without hard demands, and uh, bitter, bitter negotiations. Mm -hmm. And we talked about revenue sharing earlier. And, like, right now in, like, the story of the MLB offseason is that players are basically not being signed. They're just hanging out as free agents while teams – there's been suggestion that there's collusion among teams to not hand out contracts that players had come to expect. I saw a figure where like revenue sharing in MLB is down to like forty five percent to players, Oof. and for in a league where the union has historically been strong, um, stronger than the other major sports, even. Yeah, I mean, that's a big reason why they don't have a salary cap too, right? I yeah. Mean, so mm -hmm. the, the contracts can just go up and up, and and unlike like basketball, like I mentioned, baseball is a sport where there kind of are a lot of players in a team. I don't know, like I, people. I think it creates a lot of parity, though. Not not creates mm -hmm. a lot of parity, but it doesn't prevent parity. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm always cautious to when people like point like the Steinbrenners, for example, that you mentioned, and they're like, oh, like they'll buy everything. Like, well, I mean, you look at the sports that do have a salary cap where the owners have been more successful in kind of winning over the players or at least kind of slowing the tide of, you know, them making more and more money. And you have like five or six teams for like a decade or so that are just cycling in and out of the championship rounds. I, I think parity is one of those things that leagues talk about, you know, this idea that any team can win any season, you know, that underdogs, you know, have, have a shot and aren't just going to be bossed around by the teams that spend the most is it's sort of a second order issue. It's not the main concern for owners when they talk about, you know, having fairness and parity, they right. want to keep salaries down, but it's, right, but it's used, I think to kind of manipulate the public because the, yeah. the fans yes. always get annoyed by like lockouts and stuff. And then even some fans of, of baseball who have always consistent, a lot of them have always kind of called for, you know, a salary cap to kind of yeah. prevent teams like the Yankees, Dodgers, or, or Red Sox, or Mets, or whoever happens to be spending a lot at that given time um, from this perceived advantage. And, 
I think it's worth just looking at that as just it's really a manipulation tool. No, and it and it's absolutely not an internal tool either because half the time when you have a lockout or when you have a player strike, then on the owner side, you have small market owners and big market owners and their concerns are going to be completely different in most of these leagues. The only league where they're not apparently is Major League Baseball, but in almost every other one, they've had to make concessions so that the big teams will actually get side with the rest of the owners against the players. I mean, and most athletes, and really, this is always forgotten about, um, don't make much money and they don't last that long. Yeah. Um, I mean, they make a lot of money in terms of like the average person, but like if you're making a few hundred grand over and you have a four-year career, right? Yeah. Like, if you're like a baseball player, that's like probably some of the best you can ask for without being like, a star. A, a star or someone like that who just kind of floats around the league for a decade, you know, which is mm-hmm. a couple steps below being a star. And I think that's worth noting. Like, if you're a fan and you're someone who's listening to this and you're wondering, like, why should I care about these athletes or how, how does this kind of explain any part of labor struggle as a whole, I think that's worth looking at, too. I mean, there's been entire documentaries made about how so many athletes are just broke. And I think that's worth keeping in mind uh, when it comes to how you view these negotiations and how you view the athletes' demands. Absolutely, especially when there's um, and and there's even cases where it's through no fault of the athlete themselves. Um, these are some of the few jobs where you know you can um, where you're this highly paid, but you can still have a career-ending injury. You know, mm-hmm. we have factory jobs and things like that where that is also the case, but they're lower paid and. Um, and so we tend not to think of them as much. They're, they're not less public, public to begin with. Right. Yeah. But these guys, they're in front of us. They're on our televisions. We make huge deals out of them culturally. And they could still, you know, one bad play or, or something can happen. And that's it. They're out. One of, one of uh, the most common demands for uh, player side units is uh, the ability to stay on the health plan for the league because it's a great health plan. Mm. You know, you're going to have access to medical personnel and support personnel above what you'd have in most places. Um, and they're obviously very concerned that if your career is only going to last three or four years, are you going to be able to stay healthy? Are you going to be able to, you know, take care of yourself given that these four years were like the most physically intense of your life? I think guaranteed contracts, um, like the ones that are present in MLB, because of their at least formerly strong players' union. Um, yeah. At least I don't think anyone argue that it's kind of in decline now. The player, their players' union, mm-hmm. um, because of a change in leadership. But guaranteed contracts, I think, should be a part of any endeavor or any sport where uh, it could all go up in smoke in a minute. You know, and just mm-hmm. in any one play, any any game, it could just end just like that. Um, and that's not just beneficial to the stars, but also, but it, it's hard to do that, right? When you have a set, like most of these leagues have salary caps, it's hard for a team to all of a sudden, unless you have rules around it, um, which is a whole other thing, to kind of just have this guaranteed money still getting paid to this guy uh, on your cap, and he's not playing anymore because his spine is broken mm-hmm. or he's in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. whatever it is. Right. And so. It's a big mess, but I, I mean, I think that it, it seems to be always a basic demand that's never really met. Right. I think um, when we talked earlier about uh, fans siding with ownership, I, th- I wonder what extent, like, the rise in fantasy sports has made that happen. Like, mm-hmm. fans are now thinking of themselves not as, you know, the star athlete, but as the GM of the team who has to <laughs> mm-hmm. make decisions on, you know, which players to cut, which players to trade. And viewing players more as parts rather than, you know. It's another way to commodify right. athletes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's another way, like besides the owners commodifying them already, which is, you know, when you pay someone, that's just, that's just what happens. But it, it creates this extra element of, like, antagonism where now the fans, yeah, the fans feel like, like, oh, like, you're playing for me. Like, I paid money in this league, you know, real money, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to win real money. And it, and it creates a bitterness that I think ends up affecting the negotiations. And I think the reason why there's been so many more lockouts than strikes is because of this climate where the owners know that they're much better positioned to win a long battle. They're going to be old and rich forever. Mm-hmm. And the players are like, how many seasons do I have? Um, I remember being frustrated as a fan. I mean, because I'm so woke. I wasn't mad at I wasn't mad at the I wasn't mad at the players really. I remember being frustrated about those 2011 lockouts because. 
you know, I was like, oh my God, like there's like three of my teams are like have these great rosters right now and in their primes. Like Carmelo Anthony just got traded to the Knicks, I remember in 2011, and it's like his prime years. Like I don't want to see any of these years wasted, you know. So like, I mean, as a fan, like that is something that you think about, and I think the players and the players' unions know that uh, they're not pitched well to to win a long protracted battle, even though it's happened in the past. But I mean, now it just, especially with how fast things move and how impatient people are with the mm-hmm. news cycles. And I think as players move around more than they did in the past, they've won free agency through union efforts generally. And it's been, to some extent, they're not in town as long as they once were. Like in the 50s, you would play your whole career for one team, one city. And now maybe you leave in three years. And so I think fans have come to see players as less permanent than owners who, like you said, are going to be around making money you know, running the team for decades. Yeah. And then part of, I mean, part of that's almost like, um, like kind of an ironic twist. Cause right, that's something that the players wanted Yeah, that at times, you know, can make the uh, fans feel uh, antagonistic towards the players. Mm-hmm. Um, besides the fact they're making money because the players got what they wanted in for agency in pretty much every sport. Um, there's really very little in the way in any, sp- besides some leagues have different rules about like restricted free agency and things like that. But th- that's, kind of turned against the players, I think, because if you're a smaller city, uh, you're going to draft the guy who's really good, and, you know, five, four, three, five, six years in, depending on whatever his entry-level contract is, um, all of a sudden he's looking for a big payday. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're seeing that, like, you know, to kind of make it contemporary, about, like, a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo, um, all of a sudden... Very good. Thank you. I know, I worked on that a couple <laughs> <Nailed> times. <it. laughs> he, in Milwaukee right now, he has a lot of turmoil, and that's a guy where all of a sudden now, it's like, ooh, he's like three, four years deep into his contract, and there's been turmoil with, you know, the firing of Jason Kidd, and maybe he'll go somewhere, you know? And I think that's the latest example of a, of a city where maybe the fans are starting to get a little skeptical towards him, um, no matter how well he's playing, and they're thinking, almost expecting um, him to go away. I mean, you saw it. But sometimes it's different, too, because you see LeBron James uh, seven years into his time in Cleveland and his NBA career um, making less money than he would if he stayed in Cleveland um, mm-hmm. to play with his um, seemingly best friend in Dwayne Wade and, and win titles. Um, so it, it, People had in the past, I think less now, people talk about players chasing money over rings, and LeBron kind of did the opposite mm-hmm. and was vilified mm-hmm. for that anyways. It's just a, it's a weird dynamic um, between the fans and, and players and how they're perceived because it's gone from this kind of uh, disloyalty, um, money chasing aspect almost to kind of while still being a transient view of them, it's kind of more of just like is our city good enough for you? You know, it's almost, it's become like so much more personal as a result of the gains won by free agency and the players' ability to chase as much money as they can. Yeah, I um I had the good luck to or I had the luck to run into a few people from Detroit or Chicago who were huge Tigers fans right after the World Series ended last year and obviously a big part of that was uh Justin Verlander moving from the Tigers to the Astros. So they were telling me about all the uh sort of community initiatives that uh Tigers players are actually asked to do by ownership, not Apparently not required or anything, but they're all encouraged to live close by and and kind of become part of the of the city fabric. And apparently Justin, because he's married to a woman who's from Detroit, was making a bigger deal about it than most. Uh, so for them, it was kind of they they were very happy for him with his World Series ring and everything, and they understood why he moved teams. But at the same time, they were pretty sad that they lost a guy who had been doing so much for the city. Well, and he was traded too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Traded, yeah, it was a actually. traded ideal, and also like I think people are less eager to throw that disloyalty claim when a player is traded. Like people yeah. don't react in anger. Well, sometimes they do to yeah. ownership when they trade away a player who has been always... there for years. And when when we talk about players being workers, not having control over their product the fact that they can be traded on a whim is part of that. Like you can wake up one morning and be traded from Los Angeles where you're very happy to Detroit where it is cold <laughs> and not have any say in that unless you have a no trade clause, and, and which is increasingly are, a part of yeah, the right. buildings are empty and you know, <laughs> all these things, broken glass. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think that's why like when you see a superstar, like right. a lot of times in a big contract, it's 
you have what, a no trade clause, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Or um, there are, they like pick out teams where there'd be, okay, you can send me there. Yeah. Right. So you, you create classes within the millionaire class of athletes of like, oh, I'm a guy. I, I can choose whatever city I want. You mm-hmm. can't just send, you can't just send me to, you know, I don't know. I don't want to name a certain any cities just to like, you know, I don't want to Indianapolis. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Everyone, everyone. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's still the good part of Indiana. I'll yeah. give them that. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I've never been anywhere near there. Um, but that's, but that is a clear distinction and it, it's kind of hard to argue for or against that. Um, but I think if, if you're a fan, it's worth noting that, you know, not all these guys uh, make a ton of money. They don't last that long. Um, the vast majority of them, especially in football, where like the average age of a retired player is what, like fifty six something. I don't think it's even life expectancy. Oh, not yeah. life expectancy. Age of retirement. Not average age. I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> life expectancy of that's how long Tom Brady's going to be playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, life of a retired player, like, which is staggering, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a stat that really mm-hmm. I think just punches people in the mouth when they see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think that's worth keeping in mind, and the fact that not all athletes in the, the battle is not won in sports, right? They're not all millionaires. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's something you see in MMA, and yeah. I think that's something you know we would explore in our next segment. Yeah, um, we'll take a break and be right back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. All right, so we're back on Punching Out. Uh, this is Chris. And, yeah, we spent the whole first segment talking about, uh, like, the major pro leagues, you know, NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, um, about how in, in their labor disputes and how, yeah, like, those guys are millionaires. And for the most part, like, they're in a pretty good place as athletes. No one would argue that. Um, not It's not really true for all of them. But there are still, like, major leagues that are pretty mainstream uh, that are kind of like a, a look back in time uh, as far as how the athletes are treated and how so many of them have so little pay. Because um, back in the day, like, baseball players, unless you were Mickey Mantle or whoever, uh, you weren't a big, rich celebrity. Um, so, and it's kind of that way in the sport of MMA and mixed martial arts, um, the major promotion of which is the UFC, which is headed by Dana White. And it's interesting because it, for anyone who watches it, you'll notice like every like five years, maybe even less, there's like this new like crop or new cycle of like super mega stars that they promote. And that's kind of how fighting works. But they, you know, they make the money that you would think a major superstar athlete would make, right? But then there's guys below that who are still champions. Um, who still are not making that much money. And, like, you can look, and if you read about MMA and you, and you watch it, you'll look at, like, the payouts after each major event, and you'll see guys that are, like, on the main card, like the pay-per-view portion of the card. And even if they won, they're getting, like, a $26,000 payout. <laughs> like oh, Jesus. I know, dude. It's great. Like, the bottom part of the last card, which was, it wasn't a pay-per-view, but it was, like, on Fox, but still, like, nationally broadcast. for. And, again, this is a company that sold for, I think, $4 billion. It was the biggest sports property sale of all time uh just a couple years ago um and it was a ton of money and so there's a a lot of money in this sport um it's still making more money um but you still have these guys who are their pay is not increasing Uh, i think one example right i for anyone who's listening and you watch mma like there's this guy max holloway uh you may or may not know him he's a featherweight champion and they did like this little uh video package of him you know promoting for his last fight he had and he was, like, talking about, like, how much his life got better since he became champion, right? He's a guy who's the top featherweight in the world, probably top 10 uh, pound for pound um, in the sport, in the rankings, in the UFC's own rankings, mind you. So they, even they acknowledge that. And his, his luxuries that he got, like, he's driving around. He's like, oh, I got this Lexus. And I got, like, he's living basically like this upper middle class lifestyle, which is, like, awesome and nice. Yeah. But, like, you're talking about a guy who is, like, vert, like very close to the absolute top of his sport in the world. And he's living like a guy in, like, a wealthy suburb lives. And he's – and how long is he going to be at the top of that sport? Right. You know? and, and honestly, he just got hurt just recently, too, for his <laughs> next main event fight. So it's already something that's – the injuries are piling up. And, like, to me, like, that was just, like, the latest, like, little visual example of, like, how – steep the divide is um as far as like what the ufc is worth and what even their very best fighters are getting 
Um, people might get annoyed by Conor McGregor, for example, and his antics with Floyd Mayweather and how much even maybe even just get annoyed by how much money he made with Floyd. But it is kind of nice to see a guy like him, like, just say, you know what, Dana White, like, I'm not going to fight uh, until I'm making sure I get the money I want. I'm going to fight who I want and see actually see someone use that leverage. I think they made uh, like $100 million. Yeah. Um, and, and people think, like, why is it so different between boxing and the UFC? Uh, why is it so different in these two sports? And even though the UFC is well, kind of... what are those differences? Well, it's, I think the difference is that there is the Ali Act, number one, and what that does or what that did was ensure that there's like these basic level of standards for how boxers and again the Ali Act only applies to boxers right now for how boxers like what they should be getting paid in terms of like you know revenue sharing um, as far as healthcare they get which is obviously the biggest thing in any sport especially one that is like specifically like hyper violent and about fighting each other um, I think there's a lot of very basic important things that that has guaranteed. Um, people view it as good enough to where the push legislatively, even at the national level, uh, starting, I think, in 2016, has been, like, cover MMA under the Ali Act. Like, that's been a big thing. That's a thing guys like uh, Dana White have fought kind of hard against, you know, uh, for obvious reasons, right? Like, he's he is, like, kind of the sole face of, like, the management part of, like, all of mixed martial arts. And so you have the UFC, right, which is a promotion. Um, again, they, they try and not act like or categorize themselves as a league in the way the NFL does or the NHL, um, even though they try and apply rules to the, to the fighters that are under the UFC banner. Um, now, that Fighters sign contracts with UFC, yeah, so right? they, Yeah, they sign a contract with the UFC. So in that way, it is, it is kind of like a promotion, but in a sport where it's like you have one big promotion, maybe two that will like actually make you money in, <laughs> in the Western Hemisphere – um, you don't have a lot of options. So I think the, the biggest thing that came out of this recently was the Reebok deal with the UFC. And what that was was, so a lot of fighters, like you'd see them, you know, they're fighting in the cage and they have like their distinct sponsors on their trunks and all that and, and coming out to the ring with like these big sponsor banners. And now all of a sudden they're wearing like these Reebok uniforms. And I think this started around 2015, maybe 2014. So now, and there's like a set, like kind of flat level payout that each of the fighters gets from this Reebok merchandise. And it's like much less. But the UFC, the promotion, the people at the top who are not fighting, um, they get the bulk of the money from the deal because mm -hmm. Reebok is paying them to make the fighters wear these Reebok uniforms everywhere. And that's kind of like the most egregious example. And that means they can't sign their own deals with like no. Nike or right. whoever. Yeah. And that made that was a lot of extra money. And for a while, like I think that kind of tampered down a lot of the talk of like a fighter union because they're like, you know what? Like if you're big enough and you matter enough, you can get your own sponsors and you'll make up for your lack of fight night pay. Um, you can make up for your lack of twenty six thousand uh, dollar you know fighting fee. And it's. And it was kind of true for a while, but it, it made it well, Reebok deal made it worse. And and I think you've seen some movement towards a fighter union. Um, George St. Pierre, uh, Donald Cerrone, and a couple other guys, they made a big public show of having this of a, a fighter's union, one that would you know be organized. They had a logo. They had a press conference. They had all these things. And nobody's heard anything about it since. Nobody's joined it. There hasn't, it hasn't been present in any big contract negotiations. So in a way... MMA fighters are kind of like the freelancers of the sports world. They're mm -hmm. yeah, and that's and that's kind of the thing is they're still it, it is different than like when, when I talk about like old school sports, right? Sports back like mid twentieth century when most athletes weren't making anything really. They were kind of like the way minor league athletes are treated now. Yeah. Um, you know, they were much less free. You were kind of bound to whatever team or city you were just in, yeah. depending on your sport. So, but the thing is with the limited options. Um, currently in MMA for where you can go and make money, uh, it's just that's not very. It's the free agency thing doesn't really matter, right? It's like this kind of false false freedom, like, and you can't. It's I think that's the thing that frustrates people with MMA and the UFC, and I think why that right now is I think the battleground uh, for professional organized sports labor. So, Chris, what you're saying is that when these organizations uh, portray themselves as places where individuals can sort of, you know, put their labor out on the open market, and then the same organization takes really obvious actions that are anti-competitive in that regard, players might suddenly kind of start standing up for themselves, <laughs> might start 
trying to find ways to develop leverage against their ownership. I mean, you think, but like, I, I think you see like this rat race, I think, in, in UFC where it's like everyone, like the only way they can see themselves making up for it, they can see that like just being good isn't enough, right? I think Tyrone Woodley is another guy who has never been able to get his big paydays, um, even though he's been a welterweight champion for a long, long time. Um, but because he's deemed as boring, he's not deemed as marketable. <laughs> Um, he's not getting that kind of Conor McGregor attention, Conor McGregor money. He needs to build his brand. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, and instead they focus their energy on that instead of like who the actual enemy is. Um, whether it's a part of fighter culture, I don't know. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not an MMA fighter. You know, I haven't been around in those gyms physically. No, just as sort of a contrast, a, a similar sport, less bloody, tennis, where Hold on. Um, <laughs> players are like, like MMA fighters. They aren't on teams. They are individuals. They go to events. They perform at events. They get prize money rather than necessarily a salary from some team owner. And just two weeks ago, as we just recently discovered, um, players in tennis started publicly discussing the possibility of unionizing. Uh, Novak Djokovic, one of the best tennis players in the world, apparently, led a players meeting at the Australian Open where they said, where they started talking about the possibility of unionizing. And it's, so right there you have sort of a difference, even in individual sports, you know, one sport is talking about unionizing and the other, it's... It's it's held down. And I I think, and again, I think the promotion, like the, the promotion idea like the idea of, of of something being a promotion instead of a league or a circuit or a tour like the pga tour i think like that's such an important distinction in terms of the language used mm-hmm. to kind of separate the responsibilities of uh, something like the ufc um from their fighters or for a times i mean i know people laugh at professional wrestling but the wwe oh. was something where they're like oh we're a promotion eventually and by the early 90s they started providing health care mm-hmm. to their to the wrestlers and all those things and contracts got bigger uh, but that was due to I, i'm not really sure they, there wasn't really organizing around that either so that they've been screwed for a long time too it took a lot of wrestlers dying uh, early ages overdoses um or, or anyone who's familiar with all that kind of knows how horrible their post-wrestling lives are the first thing I want to say is this has nothing to do with the issue of labor and sports, but <laughs> I would love to know what was served at that players meeting because if I recall correctly, Novak Djokovic owns like the the world's entire supply of donkey cheese. Is that good cheese? I have no clue because how, he how owns would I know? all of it. <laughs> right? Maybe like before I, he, can't get he, any he took cheese. it all up. I mean, I think that's a union. It better demand. be good. Yeah, it's going to be a union demand. You know, and Novak's. <laughs> they got to divvy own. up the donkey cheese. Exactly. And... Every player gets a you know, revenue sharing donkey cheese sharing. There, there's a quote on in this story about the potential for a tennis union, not about donkey cheese. Oh. Um, uh, it's from a Ryan Harrison who I'm assuming is a tennis player i i haven't heard of him personally i'm sorry um and he says you know as far as a union goes it would be good to have in the sense that the people that represent us are also representing the tournament so it'd be good to have some form of representation that doesn't have bias on the other side i think what he's getting at is it's mentioned in the story that like the atp tour which is what tennis players do um it's a partnership of players and tournaments who are represented equally, and players don't really have representation that they feel the tournaments themselves do, and so mm. get less in terms of prize money as a result. Um, he says, in tennis, we make really good money, but at the same time, from a professional athlete standpoint, it's not the way it could be compared to other athletes. You see an NBA player or NFL player, you think seven figures in their bank account. I don't think that's always the case for guys that even make the main draws of Grand Slams. So like UFC, it's a sport where even high-level players are not getting the money you might expect from those at the top of their field, given the revenue that their sport generates. I'm sure like a lot of the same tactics are used yeah. by management to say, like, like, and this is another thing, I think, to kind of divert more into um, like amateur athletics, um, I think a, a big high-profile one has been with the U.S. with U.S. soccer, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the and I just thought the the women's team and the men's team. Yeah. How well, the, the well they are not amateurs, just 
Right, no, they're not like in their professionalized, but I mean, the U, when they're playing on the U.S. team, mm-hmm. it's kind, it's a right, it's like Olympics, it's World Cup, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And the women's team generates way more revenue than the men's team. They're more successful. Um, Hugely. And yeah, like besides that, right? I mean, even take away like the fact that the women's team just wins more. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they do make more money. The revenue yeah. is bigger, and yet they are being paid less than the men's team is, despite the fact that the men's team, um, especially recently, um, has, has just struggled. Cr- has cratered, right? Yeah. It's a it's a program that's been in complete collapse, and the women's team is probably one of the prouder, more like kind of universally beloved American sports teams, really. Yeah. Women's soccer. I mean, people love whenever they're mm-hmm. they're up, and the women's World Cup is on. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember some of the figures, but it it the pay disparity is disgusting. Oh yeah, it's something like uh, I think the men's team gets paid a certain amount for uh, drawing or losing in a friendly match, and the women's team either got nothing or got like I think a third of what the men's team <laughs> were getting. Uh, you know, all, all, it it seems to be like in every possible sort of performance in, incentive, quote unquote that the men's team were getting or every kind of like results-based incentive, the women were either not getting it or they were getting something, they were getting some kind of peppercorn payment, something like a tenth or a third of whatever the men's team got. And they sued to do, to to sort of remedy this disparity. And uh, they got told, basically, you can't do this because there's a no-strike clause in your contract. So ultimately, you have no way of backing this yeah. up. You know, you can only hope to... Um, to to renegotiate your collective bargaining agreement next time, and that's it. And women's athletes are sort of a subject we haven't discussed yet, but a they are grossly underpaid, regardless of sport, compared mm-hmm. to the men in their field. It's a huge gender imbalance, probably more so than any field you could think of. I think that with soccer, though, it's so much more egregious. Mm-hmm. Um, because like it is, it is one of the few situations where like the women's side uh, makes more money, like mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. as a program, as a team, like they just pull in more money. Um, that's not true about the WNBA compared to the NBA yeah. or right. or the the women's hockey league that started up or even or women's, women's soccer. professional soccer, yeah. yeah, which on which all of those those athletes that are on the women's team mostly all play in. Yeah. Um, so and they they actually they probably make more just from Team USA sponsorships and, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, the National Women's Soccer League is sort of a unique structure where like there are players who are being paid directly by U.S. soccer because they are members of the national team, and there's this disparity between them and I think the Canadian Soccer Federation is also involved, and then even their teammates who aren't getting paid by U.S. soccer but by the teams directly, and there's big salary disparities there and obviously large salary disparities between National Women's Soccer League and even MLS, which is a lower tier of men's soccer compared to the quality of the NWSL. I think there's a lot more optimism, though, than um, for that to change somewhat soon uh, because I think, especially like Hope Solo as someone who, um, I mean, she's been controversial for a couple of reasons, but I think she's at the very least been outspoken and kind mm-hmm. of out front about kind of like getting into the power structure herself and she, she's running she's run, for the yeah, president head of, of US, us soccer yeah and it's obviously doubtful that she'll win but yeah, yeah it's but but i mean that, that shows like a very concentrated push from the players themselves um especially one who i mean just very recently retired um i mean she was active just last cycle i'm sure mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a much different uh, picture in the near term future, I think, than you see in the UFC, where it's still kind of caught. In, even though people are talking about the unionization stuff mm-hmm. a lot more, it's still caught in this cycle where you have just a couple guys calling the shots. Um, it's good that you have someone at least bullying Dana White a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, I'll never I'll never boo that. Like that's cool <laughs> to me. Um, but at the same time, unless it's for everybody. Um, it's it's yeah. just going to be more of the same. You're still going to get these. I mean, a guy I mentioned the twenty six thousand dollars. One of those guys, his name is John Dodson, who formerly he actually fought for a, a title. Um, and he, since then, I mean, he's declined, but he had a show fee basically. And what a show fee is, you basically get paid just for being there. Um, and he was at this last event, and he hasn't even gotten his money. Um, and it's been a couple weeks. I mean, this was this was a story that just came out, I think, today or yesterday. Um, so it's just like a really uh, messy, gross picture with the UFC. It, and it's that way kind of, I mean, 
what we're seeing in this segment is sort of a broad overview of the athletes who aren't making what Tom Brady is making. You, right. know, you know, we think of the big four leagues, but there are probably the majority of professional athletes in the United States are not at that level. They are playing for the Red Wings. Uh, they are playing for the RIP Rhinos, the... Um, the they're, they're, they're in and yes. out of practice squads in the NFL. You know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're rotational guys who get two or three concussions or they, their ankle gets messed up and they can't play anymore, you know? It was interesting you mentioned how he wasn't being paid for tournaments because, like, soccer is a sport I care about. And you hear this a lot about foreign leagues in soccer. Like, players find that, you know, it's hard to get paid what they're owed. You know, they go to... Russia sometimes for the promise of a big payday and the big payday doesn't come. Uh, and it's one of the appeals of like playing in the U S where the pay is generally lower, but teams are more reliable about actually giving it to you. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's whenever these kind of issues come up, I mean, and I think it's always useful at least as like a jumping off point um, because it, it really is like the only time I think most people, <laughs> Think about uh, labor relations. Think uh, about contract disputes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's it's kind of unfortunate that it's in the you know in, in the context where like all of the faces in in the front of the dispute are all rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't help. It gets painted as millionaires versus billionaires. Yeah, yeah. but it's and that every single time that's exactly mm-hmm. what it's like. Every headline, every forum, little comment that's you know <laughs> just hating on the players or whoever always says that. But it's. It's just something that I th- I think is useful if you are able to frame it the right way to the people around you. And right. I don't know, at least we, we thought it was useful to at least talk about that because it's something that I think kind of is a broad kind of example of what goes on for normal people. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's a very good kind of like kind of you could put everything like in a small box for like labor relations in America so and the microcosm con- microcosm that's always the yeah that's the word I was looking yep. for <laughs> and I don't know I, I think unfortunately uh, people don't always come on the player side but um, well I think as the least of the sports fans in the room you know I've basically got like two teams I root for in <laughs> between all four major sports um, what I found out while preparing for this episode and then while talking with you guys is that so much of this stuff is stuff that not just normal people deal with in the course of their jobs, stuff we've talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when this is going to air, but like we just had a, an episode on freelancing that talks about uh, issues getting paid, just like yeah. uh, Ryan was just saying about um, soccer problems players, with yeah. soccer players. Or, or UFC, a fighter, or yeah. UFC fighters not getting paid. Uh, stuff with you know your owner basically thinking they have a right to your labor no matter what. Um, I hadn't dropped this one, but they're, uh, one of the major things that owners do apparently to sort of force early ins to lockouts is they stop paying into pension and benefit funds. So they're holding they pin, uh, current players against yep. retired players. Exactly. So you've got, they, this is all the, uh, this is all the annoyances, all of the sort of meannesses, all the bullying tactics that owners use on the rest of us, that bosses use on the rest of us, they're also using on these guys. The fact that they're incredibly rich or that they're not, uh, depending on the class of athlete they are, doesn't matter one whit. They're still getting treated the same as everybody else. Yeah. It's also, I mean, these owners are also like owners of other things. You know, mm-hmm. these are guys that are also probably have been in disputes <laughs> with just actual regular employees mm-hmm. that they have outside um, of football. We talked on an earlier episode about uh, Tom Ricketts. He owns the Chicago oh, yeah. Cubs and uh-huh. he also shut down a website, mm-hmm. you know, a whole bunch of yeah, reporters the, and journalists, Gothamist, DNA info. That, yeah. That and series. so that's how he treats af- people who are not mm-hmm. the Chicago Cubs. And mm-hmm. it, the Cubs are being treated better, but mm-hmm. it's the same guy. Yeah. Well, and, and for the longest time, they were also protected from a public relations standpoint by the fact that unless you live in that city, you had no well, idea who they were. You know, it's only recently that we started to really know owners beyond, like, well, the Jerry Jones case mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, people know who the owners uh, uh, who the owners of the Browns and Bengals are because they tend to try to get in there and, yeah, and if, run the if team if you move badly. a team, you'll, you'll get public yeah, very get quickly. Get some good info, yeah. Yeah. But, like, 
a, a few decades back, if you're not in the city that a team is striking in, you know, to take the example of the 87 strike, if you're not in Philadelphia, you probably don't know who owns the Eagles. That you don't, you can't put a face to that name, yeah. and you have no idea who this is, but you know who the players are. Yeah. You've seen them play, and that creates a, a very different environment, I think, for the owners. Yeah, they're like behind <laughs> the scenes. They get to hide, and they get to uh, mm -hmm. keep their money forever. I mean, and, and, and when time is always on their side, I mean, it's... You know, I mean, the players are always going to be on somewhat the losing end of every argument, it seems like. I mean, they, they never really seem to get everything they want. Um, the MLB Players Union um, is really, I mean, it's hard to pin it on all one guy and just one change of leadership. But, I mean, a lot of times it, just, it does just take the right people to come along. Mm -hmm. um, and until that happens, I mean, you're going to see this current kind of very stark inequality of athletes where, you know, you have guys that play a long time, make a lot of money. Um, and because of that, they get the endorsements to make more money. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think a solution would be like collectively owned teams. Um, right. I think, especially, in, I think in basketball, that's the most plausible future. Um, when, you know, you have small rosters, it's, it's wouldn't be as difficult to manage. Um, guys like LeBron James, for example, I mean, I think the flip side of, the growth of like rich athletes is you have guys who get good at business. Yeah. They get good at marketing. Um, so they, they, I think guys like that would be able to manage uh, a team and collectively own team and actually run a league and know what the players want and what the players need. Um, I think that is like a, a future for sports that would be in line with our beliefs. Um, and I, I think it's a viable alternative. I mean, not one that I think is like on the horizon or anything. Um, but if, if the players are the players know what the players want and the players know uh, where the money should go, um, the owners are just kind of in the way. We'll be back after this brief break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, we're back with uh, more of Punching Out for You. My name is Noah, and we've just been talking about various kinds of sports and uh, labor efforts within them, but we haven't talked yet about a huge field of sports in the U.S., which is college athletics. Um, obviously, the NCAA uh, controls a good deal of that. And in recent years, there's been efforts by uh, players, by people outside the NCAA, to sort of see to it that college athletes are in some way remunerated uh, for their labor. And um, I think it, it, it seems like a just demand in general, but uh, obviously there are arguments against it. As it stands, college athletes are not paid beyond some of them receive a scholarship to attend the college that they play for. And it's it's in a way like if Walmart decided to pay you in a Walmart gift card. It's like mm -hmm. a, it's like the old factory towns, you yeah, know, like company it, script. Yeah, like 120 years ago. Like I, even I've seen some people my age like when I was in college, um, like I went to Niagara, which is a smaller school. So there was um, even among students like this kind of blowback against the idea of paying because it's like, oh, well, what do we do? Like, how can we financially compete with a, a mm -hmm. big school like or a public, you big public university? And I mean, honestly, I'm always tongue tied with that because I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe there's like a tight like wage ceiling. I don't know. But the fact is, like, these guys need to get paid. It sort of it gets back to the arguments about parity in professional sports. It's used right. mm -hmm. as a tool to yes. avoid the subject mm -hmm. of, you know, who gets what more than, you know, how do we make this fair? Yeah. Yeah. And I went to a Division three school, and I didn't play any sports. So for me, I'm no thinking, way. yeah, go figure, Chris, go figure. <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking whenever I heard this argument, I'd be like, well, but, you know, they get a scholarship, and, and they get, they're essentially, you know, part of their tuition is getting covered for what's essentially playing a game. And as somebody who... Again, didn't play any sports. Yes, Chris is still surprised over here. Um, you know, is there any other college activity that we'd consider uh, paying for? You know, right. students who do things like theater or whatever that also take massive amounts of uh, effort and time out of their lives. But then I think about it and I'm going, well, yeah, but none of those are making insane amounts of money. Right. For Billions. the NCAA, Billions. for the schools, for their coaches. 
you know, uh, what was the what was the figure on that Jimbo Fisher deal this year? Some seventy million or something? Oh yeah, I mean, they, I think like Jim Harbaugh in Michigan, he signed a couple years ago. Now is seven million a year contract. The, yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't know if you've seen like the map that lays out the highest paid public employee at each mm -hmm. of each state, and most of them are football or basketball coaches. Yep. Yep. There's like three states where it's the president of the university instead. God yeah. forbid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um. Yeah, no, it's 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 an insane amount of profit for the schools for the for everybody but the students. So it's it's hard to think of a solution to that problem is the thing. Like how do you structure that? As Chris as you just pointed out, you've got uh students who are wondering, well we're a small school, how are we going to be able to compete mm -hmm. if we have to pay because won't bigger schools just pay everybody more and so on. And I was kind of interested in in that. I'm I I'd like to think about how do we solve the problem? The I guess the counter argument against that is that the bigger schools already have more to offer than mm -hmm. like Niagara. That's what I would tell people. Yeah, I mean, like, some players are getting paid under the table, obviously, oh, yeah. but there's also there's a certain allure to playing for mm -hmm. a program with history with a chance at winning a title where you will be on TV often yeah. that mm -hmm. doesn't come from, I mean... That not all schools mm -hmm. can offer to begin or you, with. You have like an alumni base, like Syracuse. You right. know, like that's a school where their alumni base. Uh, a lot of them are, fame, are not, you know, big time journalists. You know, people mm -hmm. who are in sports mm -hmm. broadcasting. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a bias of coverage. Or Northwestern's a one where, right? Mm -hmm. um, who I think their athletes tried to start a union. They did, and yes. they tried to unionize, and that's another cup like where they have a lot of uh, broadcast majors mm -hmm. who have graduated and become big time. And then it gets more attention than it might yeah, otherwise. Yeah, because they have sympathy towards them. And Northwestern got lucky there because um, at first, their uh, what is it? Their, the regional field director in Chicago for the National Labor Relations Board actually said, in every important way, these are employees of the school. They should be allowed to unionize. <laughs> and then in August 2015, it went before a vote of the full National Labor Relations Board, and to nobody's surprise, they said no that you, you are not going to be allowed to progress with this, which was a huge loss that, that would have set a precedent that would have at least gotten us all talking about What's next? this is you a know? problem, but yeah. how do we solve it? Yeah. You know, how do it's you... like, I mean, we don't have debates about whether colleges should pay the student who works at the bookstore. Uh, yeah, that's weird because a lot of times it's like a work-study thing. Well, yeah. And, and it is an insane amount of work. I talked to a friend of mine who does... Um, uh, she's an athletic trainer out on the West Coast, and she sort of gave me an overview of what the life of a college athlete is like. And she's saying, you know, for almost every athlete, unless it's, uh, I think she said pretty much any sport you're looking at, um, especially if they're at a Division One, you're looking at 10 to 25 hours a week, and that's just weights and conditioning, that's practices, that kind of thing. Um, once you start counting games, start counting mandatory study hall, which is a thing now in most universities, uh, film room, travel time, team meetings, anything else, you're looking at basically a full-time job. It's somewhere yeah. between 30 and 50 hours. And on top of that, they still have to go to classes, supposedly. Uh, you know, there are <laughs> famous scandals where schools are offering fake classes or what have you. Um, they do, like, interviews. I mean, Yeah, they have to do interviews. They're, they, they're <laughs> indistinguishable, honestly, from mm -hmm. poetry. Like, if you're just sitting there as a fan and you're unaware of the context, like, it is so indistinguishable from professional sports. Absolutely. And the way, like, they're just, like, out there and the way that they're just active, the way that they're talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's also the psychological pressure of it. Mm -hmm. um, you're someone who's, you know, I think a lot of those guys at that level are used to it, like, in their communities. But then, you know, you don't have a national Twitter feed of people talking about you when you're a high mm -hmm. school star. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the people in your local newspaper. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden you have people, like, talking trash about you, saying, oh, you should, you know, mm -hmm. you should do better, you know, and much worse things than that, obviously. Um, so and you're like 21 at most. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're, if you're playing college basketball, I mean, and mm -hmm. you're really good. I mean, you're not, you're probably not going to stick around past 20. And some of these players are like the very top echelon are going on to make large sums of money playing the game professionally. Mm -hmm. But as the NCAA reminded us for years, most of their athletes are going pro in something other yeah, than other sport. Than sport. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so if, and especially cause some of them will be, cut down by injury before they get mm -hmm. the chance to go pro. Absolutely. Uh, there have been major improvements in how injuries are dealt with, but in, in general, like the biggest problem we have now is as we've made the sport safer, as uh, our treatment, our medical treatment of players has increased, now we have unforeseen long-term effects, things that we couldn't know before because 
players would uh, get too grossly injured. Careers would end. Players might suffer major bodily damage. Mm-hmm. Now they're surviving those injuries and their careers are surviving them. But that brings on knock-on effects that we didn't know were there beforehand. I mean, you look at head trauma. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are studies showing players, football players who never went to the pro level, who only played Mm -hmm. as far as college, had massive brain damage. Yeah, but guys in the NFL who are just two years deep and their heads are, you know, their brains are mush. You know, you know, and you can make an argument. Okay, NFL players by that age, you know, they sign the money, they sign contract, they know what they're getting into, but. How can you say that about a college athlete who Absolutely. isn't getting the big money, yeah. who is yeah. taking these immense risks for tuition? Yeah, well, tuition and just the, the chance to, like, just gl- glory to, a, you know, it's, I mean, it's not I just feel good. Like, you want to make your family proud, like, especially mm-hmm. when you play when you're younger. You know, a lot of it's for social standing. You love the game. And very and even a very tiny slice of that is like, oh, I'm doing this because maybe I have a shot. You know, maybe yeah. I have yeah. a shot to go big. Right. Um, so it's it's... It, they're really not playing for anything tangible a lot of the time. Well, uh, this friend of mine that I talked to was saying she works at a junior college, which is in college sports, you know, you take the first two years of your career to play there. It's a slightly less high-pressure level of play. You get better, and then hopefully you transfer to a four-year institution that's got, like, a bigger program because you've improved over those two years. You've had the chance to be a big fish in a little pond, hopefully. <laughs> and she's saying, you know, every football player I've got dreams of making it to Division One and then pro. It's less common in basketball and baseball, but it's still there to some extent. Like, very few of them are coming into this. I mean, they're young. You expect that. You know, mm-hmm. that's the time to dream big. And very few of them are realistic enough to go, it is very unlikely that I'm going to make it past this level. So what you're saying is that even at this low level, there are people who have dreams of striking it rich and are willing to accept conditions they might not otherwise because they think that one day they will make it to the top yeah when you have billions of dollars invested in these franchises like we've been talking about and um even if not enough of that is going to the players or even if not enough of that is being equitably shared when there's this massive amount of money in the industry there will always be people willing to break their bodies for that that that's been true throughout human history you tell people there's huge amounts of money in this if uh, in you know, in exchange, all we ask of you is that you risk your life for it. There's always going to be a class of people who would do that, especially if their life is a lot harder. The, uh, you know, the example when I was growing up is that as uh, economic conditions in Puerto Rico got better, the number of star quality baseball players leaving the island kind of plummeted because suddenly there were other options for you. If you were a kid who was like athletic enough to play, there were local baseball teams that were making okay money, things like that. I think it's worth noting as far as college, though, that, like, the NCAA, like, it's like it's not, like, a unified league, right? It's all broken down mm-hmm. into conferences. And I think, like, that's always how I thought of as a workaround for, like, like oh, well, how will we handle this play? Like, well, I think it should go conference by conference. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. the conferences could have, like, this kind of, like, because the conferences are all, like, they have, like, their 12 to 15 or even 10 teams that are all, like, in the same sphere of, like, the money they're making, the exposure they get, you know, mm-hmm. like, the Big 12 and the SEC are... You know they're they're in the same kind of category, um, so I think like that's a way to do it. Um, the conference system can be used to kind of to structure how pay would work and to pay pools. And I mean, we're talking about colleges where I mean they're filled with academics. They know how to pay people for doing a job. You know, it's it's not that difficult. I don't think yeah. it's. Um, I think the 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 issue that you then trip up over is actually something that we've been talking about, which is equity. You know. Uh, you don't want, uh, hopefully, you don't want to replicate the same problems that we've just spent 40 minutes talking about. Mm-hmm. So, for example... But those problems are better. Like that's the, yeah. I think that's the thing. Like Those are better problems to have than just like not getting paid, I think. True. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, which sports do you... Let's start with that. Which sports do you pay? Do you only pay the ones that generate above a certain level of revenue for the school? Second of all, you have stuff like the difference between men's and women's sports at the college level you've got stuff like red shirts guys that are going to practice but they're never going to see actual play they're putting in uh with the exception of the red shirts because they don't see games but even they're putting in basically full-time hours per week Mm -hmm. how do you say which athletes get paid yeah the the i think you're right i think you're absolutely right uh that's a better problem than them not getting paid at all but and and that shouldn't stop the progression of of solving the problem but it is something that we have to consider because we also don't want to replicate the same issues that are present at the pro I guess, level. post-college level or pro level. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
it's been a fascinating discussion. I feel like we could have gone on much longer, but uh, we're limited to this amount of time. So for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Chris. And I'm Noah. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.